You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite us into a time of doing that in the scripture and, and invite you into the book of Nehemiah. You'll see in the book of Nehemiah, uh, a, a, in some sense, a, a, picking, a picking up for us where we've left off last week at the end of the book of Ezra. But, but I want to draw your attention to a couple of quick things as we start a new book of the Bible together. And, uh, and, and it's this. You'll see um, a resource that has been very helpful for us is the ESV Journal Bible. You'll see them out in the lobby. And, and if this uh, might be a good resource for you to scribble in the notes to make uh, and highlight and, and make notes or annotate or maybe just doodle. Uh, maybe draw stick figures of me. I've seen those in the ESV Journal Bible. I forgive you. I don't blame, I don't blame you. And so uh, I, I would say uh, this for us has been a really great resource to begin to apply and, and let the, the Word of God, the Scripture, saturate our own lives and minds. And so you'll see that on the way out. We would love to, to get those to you for a very reasonable uh, amount of money. And even if that's a barrier for you, having a resource to, to get into God's Word, we want to we find a way to give it to you. And so uh, I want to point you to that. But in addition to that, one of the things that I share regularly as we as a church walk through books of the Bible is this, that um, my, my, my notes here are, are extensive extensively footnoted, but, but I, I just want to share with you that it is our commitment as a church to be, in many ways, radically unoriginal. That is, that uh, even that quote is from a systematic theologian by the name of Thomas Oden. And we want to commit ourselves to radical unoriginality when it comes to opening the Scripture. That is, our goal is to uncover something ancient and timeless, not something new and innovative. In fact, innovation in theology has a code word in the history of the church. It's called heresy. And so we have a, we have a, we have a commitment to, to the confession of the apostles and the saints that they have been held for generations. And so we're invited to do that. And so I say that because I want you to know that, that on one hand, if, if I say anything helpful, if there's anything particularly pithy or witty or helpful or insightful, you can rest assured that that is not from me. You can rest assured I heard that, read that, got that from someone else. Uh, I've told this story regularly. There's, there was one time I had, uh, as a pastor, I had like this kind of a, a quote. This, it was a phrase that was really kind of, it was kind of insightful, and people were like deeply ministered to by it. And, uh, and in a residency to plant a church, years later, someone gave me a book that was part of the residency. And the residency, uh, this book in the residency was written by a guy I don't agree with, don't like, would never want to quote or be like, frankly. I was like, all right, whatever. About three chapters in, he says this thing, which was word for word, the quote that I thought was original with me, and he had written it 10 years before, and I don't even like the guy. And that was the Lord's insightful way to humble me and go like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how that works. That's, this is how that works. And so I want to, on the other hand, also encourage you by, if you have any questions or, in, or if anything in the text that you find yourself wanting to know more, we as a church, and I personally would love to resource you. The goal of, of opening the scripture isn't that you are sitting back and entertained by an expert in the room. The goal isn't that there's one person in the room who dives deeply into the text. The success in my, my current calling and job is the extent to which the experts in the room are in the seats around you. That, that we encounter God together. So I, I want to invite you into a new book of the Bible, uh, even though as we shared over the last couple of weeks originally in the Hebrew scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. That is that we're going to begin in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1, and, and in the original, it, it was just the next particular paragraph after, 
Ezra. And so remember I told you in Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three different movements marked by three different characters. In many ways, it should be titled Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel came to to bring people back to Jerusalem out of exile to worship God. And his task was to rebuild, you'll remember, the altar and also to rebuild physically the temple. And then came Ezra, who came along to renew and, in a sense, rebuild the spiritual vitality of the people. And now, in the chapters of Nehemiah, you'll see kind of a a conclusion to the unsatisfying ending of Ezra as Nehemiah leads God's people to not only rebuild the walls, but also, again, at the same time, lead them through a renewal of their own spiritual vitality. So, don't be afraid of the table of contents. There's a Bible even uh, under the chair you're probably sitting on. I would love for you to join us, and I'm going to read the first chapter of Nehemiah, and I, I want to invite you into hearing this story of how God used an unlikely character to, to bring about vitality and renewal in his people, and in the same way, be invited to long even now that God would do the same for us. So beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll read the entirety of the first chapter. And uh, I I say this regularly, if if through the course of a long reading, you find yourself kind of spacing out or going somewhere else, right? That's fine. I hope it's nice and, and has palm trees, right? But as you find yourself coming back maybe to the room, coming back, I want you to draw special attention to maybe what draws your attention back. And I want you to be encouraged that as you drift off and then come back, I want you to know you've just engaged in the practice of renewal. We are regularly coming back to God. So if you space out over the next little bit and come back, join the club. Beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, 
From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man is that? Now I was cupbearer to the king. May God add wisdom and blessing and encouragement to the reading of his word. I began this series, this time as a group of people walking through this history of renewal in Jerusalem with a question, and I want to resume that question and answer even now. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? In your own life, where do you find yourself lacking joy, lacking contentment, lacking hope? Where do you find yourself hardened towards other, where, others? Where do you find yourself unforgiving towards others? Where do you find yourself the most bitter and judgmental towards people? Where do you find yourself the coldest towards the things of God? I want you to ask that question because in many ways it is the basis of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. That a people who had been scattered by exile, who were hopeless and mourning and singing dirges of lament for how awful things are and, and for how they wondered if God would ever return to them, restore them, or care for them ever again, were miraculously brought back to experience God's grace and renewal again. I was so ministered to last week as Nathan shared that word, that word again, the, the awful ending of Ezra that things end in an anti-climax. Well, in many ways, it's because the, the conclusion of the story is, is in Nehemiah, but I'll warn you, at the end of Nehemiah, you'll find yourself longing for more again. And if there's one thing that I know is my own tendency to sin could easily be described by an all-caps version of again. And the only the only thing that outclasses the, I don't know, againness of my own sin, as Ezra and Nehemiah teach us, is the againness of God's renewing grace. And so this story in the grand scheme of the Bible is known as and thought of as a second exodus. It's not even the first time that God has saved and redeemed his people. It's not even the first time that he has restored them as they've wandered in sin. And Nehemiah is the one who's raised up to be a minister of, a servant of that renewal. Again. And in many ways, Nehemiah completes the story of homecoming. If you've ever felt like you don't belong, Ezra and Nehemiah are an encouraging word for you. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of renewal. But it's also a picture of what godly leadership looks like. I shared this with many of you when we began, that Ezra and Nehemiah have specific words for us. 
if nothing else, for the fact that you and I have, over the last year and a half, at some point, felt scattered and disoriented. And Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of restoration and gathering back to God's presence. We experience weariness. I think it was over a year ago that I first heard the phrase COVID fatigue. That, that, that was over a year. But even practically, the, the rebuilding that Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people to experience is also, in, in some sense, the fact that over a year ago, you and I were not in this building, and we are in this room sitting in a building project. We're not finished. And that can, in many ways, be disorienting and exhausting. But thirdly, what Ezra and Nehemiah offer for us practically is that in the next year, two, and three, we get a chance to raise up godly elders, deacons, and more leaders in our church. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is a paradigm for what godly leadership looks like, practically speaking. And what we find here is that Nehemiah, in in his position and in his awareness of sinfulness, does something amazing. Most people think that a good leader is, is made by their strength, by their fortitude in the face of adversity. And what we're introduced to to hear, well, that may be true, is a leader who was made great by his weeping and his sorrow, his mourning. You can skip over, and you see the timeline that's been given us in Ezra and Nehemiah. It begins in the month of Hislev. That's like, that's like November or December, and then it skips forward. If you look at the first verse in chapter 2, we'll see next week, it's the month of Nisan. That's some four months later. And so his mourning and his weeping lasted for a long time. His fasting and praying lasted for a long time. And so one of the greatest leaders in the history of the story of the Bible is first introduced to us by his greatness in weeping. Practically speaking, if you think you're too strong to cry, Nehemiah says you're probably too weak to lead. Now, the overlap of Ezra and Nehemiah can be confusing. We're going to see Ezra show up again later. And the timeline is hard to track. Remember I shared with you, it's over the course of, uh, as, the, as the Babylonian Empire fell and the, the, as, the, as the, the Persians came and took over, we've, we've walked through several kings. The, the original uh, moving kind of piece in Ezra verse 1 chapter 1 is that Cyrus was stirred up by God, evidently, God sovereignly ordained, even a, a pagan king, to allow and invite the people to return from exile back to Jerusalem and to put it back together. And then again, we see the favor of Ezra under the next king. And then at this point, in verse 1 of chapter 2, you'll see here, we're at the 20th year of who? King Artaxerxes, another Persian king. And we're meant to see the rhythm that evidently in this story of renewal, God used the most unlikely circumstances. Pagan, idol-worshiping kings were the mechanism that God used as a puppet to fulfill his purpose. They rebuild the altar and restore right worship of God. They lay the foundation of the temple and rebuild it. And this remnant, a much smaller people than came out of Exodus, 
came here in a second exodus as a, as a remnant seeking and experiencing renewal. We find that God will not neglect his people. God will hear his people and he will purify his people. He will be present with them. And so, one of the first things we see here is that as, 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 a, as a picking up where Ezra had left off, as a, in many ways a conclusion to this chapter, Nehemiah is writing. So for the next several chapters, it's going to be in many ways like a, a, a first-person narrative. You'll see, did you hear Nehemiah speaking for himself? I, 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 right? So in the words of Nehemiah, now it happened that I, Nehemiah speaking, he was at this time in this place confronted by some people who came from Judah. That was the place that had been utterly destroyed, the capital city of Jerusalem, the temple, and everything that was beautiful that Solomon had built at the height of, at the, height of the united kingdom under David and Solomon, at the height of their wealth and prosperity. They built the most beautiful city at that point that even kings and queens came from miles and miles around to just honor and celebrate how awesome it was. But it was destroyed in 587. And so these people confronted Nehemiah and said that concerning the people, the Jews who had escaped, who had made it through the bloodbath of, of murder that the Babylonians had, had, had done, there's a remnant there in the province who survived. And they survived, but they're in great trouble and great shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. So in many ways, it's hard to tell what he's being confronted with. Is, is he talking about something that happened some many, many years before, almost a century before when the Babylonians destroyed everything? Or is he talking about, up to this point in the story, the present state of affairs? Even, even though, the, even, even though the, the altar had been rebuilt, even though the temple had been rebuilt, the walls around the city that would give it safety and fortitude had not been rebuilt. And we'll find out later that they, the people were under a great deal of persecution and distress. So we don't know that in this sense that, that Nehemiah is sad about the original thing that happened some 140 years before, or we don't know if he's fully sad about the present state of affairs. But I think it's safe to say in many ways he was overwhelmed completely with both. He mourns and he prays. And this is a powerful thing. When he receives it, verse 4 says everything you need to know about Nehemiah and everything that we're invited to experience when we trust and see that God is there for us. As soon as I heard. Do you hear that? Somewhat instantaneously. As soon as I heard about how awful things were, what did he do? He stopped what he was doing. He sat down. He wept. He mourned for days. He fasted and prayed. As we're thinking about the building blocks of renewal, experiencing a renewed sense of vitality spiritually and joy and hope, I want to propose to you three different things here and some, some practical applications I think that we see in this chapter. The first is right there. Nehemiah sees what is broken and turns to God. Now, this shouldn't be unfamiliar for us. As we walked uh, over a year ago, we walked through the book of Lamentation and the people who were originally exiled, the, the right and worshipful thing was to cry out to God. And the right and worshipful thing, as we see over the course of the majority of the Psalms even, is to lament, is to call out to God and say, this is broken. Won't you come fix it? 
Now, I know for many of you that seems absurd, right? That seems weird that we would cry out to God and complain to God and tell God, you know, come, how long are you going to leave things broken? But I want you to know that's exactly what faith demands. That's a worshipful thing to do. In fact, up to this point, idolatry would be to see the broken things and look to something or someone else to fix them. Right? I share this with you. Like, I, I don't mind that my daughters ask me for a pony or something, right? That, or, or a puppy, for that matter, or a drum set. Um, when we get in trouble is when they go ask you, and you give it to them. And now we got a problem, right? And so in this sense, like, Crying out to God is a good thing. It's the right thing. And so for many of you, one of the most important steps you might take is to see what's broken in the world and for the, maybe the first time in your life, tell God you're not happy about it. And the reason we can do that is because God is perfect and righteous. Now here's the thing. If you come to me and complain to me, I immediately feel defensive. I feel accused, right? And you probably do too. But God, thankfully, is not prideful, insecure, arrogant, or in need of anything. And so when you cry out to God, he's like, I know, I, I'm as if, as if I didn't know. In many ways, we're simply agreeing with God. But this is a difficult thing to do. And yet it's a part of experiencing renewal to tell God what's broken in the world. That may seem silly for some of you. I know many of us are we're kind of like, we're kind of either culturally or even religiously invited to think that like the people of faith are always happy, right? If you're not joyful, even this morning, if you're like kind of mad or frustrated or it was really hard to get here, maybe you didn't even want to be here, right? That that's somehow wrong. There's something broken about that. But here's the thing. If you look at the brokenness in the world and that doesn't bother you, something's wrong with you. If you begin to understand the worldwide web of human trafficking and you're like, meh, something's wrong with you. If you hear the cries around the world and across history of people who have been murdered, oppressed, pillaged, and that doesn't bother you, then you haven't really seen it for what it is. And so first and foremost, friend, we have a God who delights to hear even the complaints of his people. So whatever's broken that you see in the world, whatever's broken even in your own heart, in the relationships around you, whatever is broken that you sense it is not quite right. I assure you, God is not surprised by it. I assure you, like, hey, this thing, this thing, this whole, you know, this whole thing is really awful. This injustice is really terrible. And God's like, oh, I didn't know. In many ways, he saw it, has been, has been waiting for you to get on board with it. And so the act of lament, of crying out to God, even over an extended period of time, did you hear they wept, they mourned for days, and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When we see what's broken in ourselves and in the world, and we turn to God for a solution, we're on the verge of renewal. We're on the verge of experiencing something new. When we mourn and pray, we're on the verge of God working. Here's the second thing we see. We're introduced to Nehemiah as the son of Hakaliah in the first verse. But that's it. If you'll remember, when we were introduced to Ezra, he had an extensive lineage. Because after all, Ezra was a priest. It's important that he had that lineage. But it's really interesting. And in many ways, Nehemiah is just a guy. We don't even know anything about Hakaliah, just a guy. That's his lineage, son of this guy. 
and he was cupbearer to the king. He was a guy with a job, a guy you've never heard of, who, by some miraculous means, was elevated to a fairly influential position. And then what follows in verse 4 to verse 11 is one of the most God-exalting, amazing like prayers that you can imagine. Side note here, you'll see that at least 10 different times in the book of Nehemiah, we hear prayers. In many ways, Nehemiah is a model for prayer more than it is anything else. But what Nehemiah lacked in remarkable lineage, he made up for in scriptural posture and prayer. Did you hear the allusions to the story of God's people up to that point? They ought to, as, you, as we've been walking through the Bible together and become familiar with the salvation history across Scripture, these ought to sound familiar. He starts saying, you're the God of heaven, right? The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, right? That sounds familiar, right? You're like, oh, that sounds like Genesis. That sounds like Leviticus. That sounds like the covenant of God towards, towards Noah towards Moses, right, that, that, to, towards Abraham, right, that, that sounds familiar, the God who keeps promises. And, and then he starts, to make, uh, he starts to make reference to, you said, remember the word in verse 8, that you commanded Moses, that if we're unfaithful, we'll be disciplined in love, but if we return to you, we'll be received, right? And so he's, he's just making reference to what he already knows to be true about God. And I love that because in this sense, what we find out about Nehemiah is that he doesn't have a Barely, it doesn't have a really remarkable lineage. In many ways, if you think about it, the way that the exile worked was that the people who were, were, who were deported from Jerusalem to begin with, remember the tradesmen, the people who were gifted, all the smart and awesome people were, were taken to Babylon to be used to build the Babylonian empire, and then the rest of the people were left. And you're left kind of like, which is worse? That all the smart, right? Imagine just even right in this room. Which would be worse? If all the smart and talented people got taken away from us or that you weren't one of them, right? Like, like that's heartbreaking. But in many ways, we see the same, th- same thing here. Nehemiah wasn't a part of one of the first waves of returnees, was he? He was still, he was, it says he was in Susa. He was still in Babylon. He didn't get to go back with Jeshua or with Zerubbabel or Ezra. In many ways, he, he might have just been like, hey, I'm... Maybe he wasn't one of those people. He wasn't one of the priests. He wasn't one of the remarkable people who were going to help rebuild the altar and rebuild the temple. A guy with no lineage. And yet notice what makes him remarkable in this chapter. He knows the story of God. And he takes a posture accordingly. I may be no one, right? He doesn't, doesn't reference it. I may be no one, but listen to him. But God, this is the God of the heavens. This is the God who is created. This is the God who keeps his promises. This is the God who renews. This is the God who never abandons his people. This is the God who's slow to anger. This is the God who is abounding in steadfast love. And so he appeals to him, not on the basis of any of his own merit, but don't you love the grace of this? And don't you love what that encourages us to be invited into? Maybe you don't have a lot of hope in your own family story. Maybe you don't have a lot of hope in your own influence or position. But friend, you were never meant to hope in those things anyway. And Nehemiah invites us to hope in the God who keeps his promise. And what he lacked maybe in a remarkable lineage or name, evidently we see is his humility is demonstrated in the way that he prays. His humility is demonstrated in the way he fasts. It's even demonstrated in the way that he confesses sin. 
and he speaks out to God in honor. Notice he begins with titles of God. O Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God. I, I want to I hammer on this. These things, as he's crying out to God with these names and titles of who God is, this is not an introduction to prayer. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly important and integral component of prayer. Honoring and worshiping God is not an introduction to prayer. It's a necessity for prayer. And he cries out to God. Now, there are many, I, I commend these to you, there are many different resources, many different books on the names of God, even just in the Old Testament, not even in the New Testament. But even up to this point, here's a top list of words that, or phrases that have been used to describe God, even up to just this point in the, in the Scripture that we find in the Old Testament. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. Adonai, my Lord and Master, Yahweh, I am the one that is. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there. Jehovah Tzikednu, the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Mekadishkem. That's a fun one. The Lord who sanctifies or makes us holy. El Olam, the everlasting God. El Kana, the jealous God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is peace. Jehovah Shaboah, the Lord of all hosts. And when you see God that way, it changes the way you speak to him, doesn't it? It changes maybe even the fact that you might want to speak to God. Notice that 25 times, if you want to, this would, this would not be a, a bad distraction. 25 times in this one passage, you can underline the phrase or the words, you or your. 25 times. Did you catch it? O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those. And here it comes. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open. Let the prayer of your servant, I pray before you. Did you get it? Like it just keeps going. We've, been act, we've acted corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded to your servant. Do you hear it? It just keeps going. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. <laughs> like, think of it. The, the, the focus, I mean, I, I, I've said this with you before, like the thing I've learned more and more either in just preaching through the Old Testament or just even reading it myself is uh, the grace of repetition. Uh, I get annoyed when I have to repeat myself. And... And God delights to repeat himself. And the grace of repetition in the scripture is, is a necessary grace for me because I, like whether we're in the book of Judges or otherwise, am prone to forget. But notice the, the focus. He hardly mentions himself. He just sees God for who he is and his prayer is transformed by this. And so he has a knowledge of the word of God. He, he sounds like Moses here, doesn't he? He sounds like almost identical to the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And so why is Nehemiah so affected and mourning over the fate of things and the effects of sin? His mind is filled with Scripture and his thoughts are filled with the character and nature of God. Do you want to have the strength and character in difficult situations? Nehemiah gives us a practical principle. This, has not, this is not about you. 
see God and hear his word. That's how we do it. One commentarian says it this way, if if you care more about something else, such that it is what stirs your mourning and weeping and stirs up your affections, than the advancing of God's kingdom in the world, then there's probably something you should repent of. There's probably a, a practice or a series of practices in your own life that shape your identity more than who God is and what God is doing, and more than who God is and what he has said to us in Scripture. Here's a quote. It says, if you care more about how your favorite college football team does on Saturday than you do about how the gospel is advancing, that's probably because your identity is more shaped by the time you spent watching and talking about football than the time you spent studying the Bible. Again, fill in the blank instead of college football with whatever else that is, right? Youth sports, I don't know, right? Which do you know better, he says, the roster stats and prospects of your favorite team or the contents of the scriptures? Ouch. (laughs) Why do you feel more passionate about the players on your favorite team or pastors and missionaries? Or excuse me, why why do you feel more passionate about the players on your favorite team than pastors or missionaries or co laborers in the gospel? Which would grieve you more? Seeing your favorite team lose the national championship or hearing that Christians are being persecuted in a faraway place? Now, again, he's speaking to a context that is fairly heavily loyal to a particular college football team. But I found that to be a helpful insight, right? Maybe it's not sports. Maybe it's just your children. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe that thing that really stirs you up. That thing that, even imagine this, over the last two years, what's the thing that's really upset you? I guarantee you there's more than one, right? What's the thing that really outraged you over the last year and a half? And if it's not the advance of God's kingdom, the effects of sin that cause harm to our co-laborers in the gospel, then Nehemiah has a provoking rebuke, doesn't he? Your heart and identity might be in the wrong place. And over 25 times, he says, how you change it. You, you, O Lord, your people, your purposes, your will. And so he knows here the scripture deeply, and he's concerned with God's people. Think of it this way. Later, we're going to, in the book of Nehemiah, discuss the difference between godly and righteous anger versus ungodly and unrighteous worldly anger. But here we discuss and we're introduced to the category of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Lamenting over God's purpose and his people versus lamenting over our own kingdoms and our own sin. So, Here's the third thing we see. Confession and intimacy with God go hand in hand. Did you you hear what he immediately did? He let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you today and night before the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing, this is in verse 6, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. This is a tough one. Um, 
I don't have any problem asking you for grace on this one because I'm, full, I'm in a room mostly full of people who are steeped in Western individualistic thought. And one of the most provocative things that the Scripture presents to us is that we not only lament our own personal individual sin, but we lament corporate sin. After all, you and I were born, as, as the New Testament tells us, in Adam. And our sin, we have all sinned and are under federation or headship with Adam and his sin. Now, here's the thing. None of us were in the garden. None of us ate that fruit. But here's what you and I know. We would have. We totally would have. And so this is an invitation that's provocative for us. To not just think about sin in terms of our own individual actions or omissions, but to think about sin as a pervasive force that kills and infects everyone. Because after all, intimacy with God comes alongside confession. Maybe think of it this way. Sin and vital prayer do not mix. At the very least, if you find yourself struggling in some way to pray to God, to look to God, to to spend any time meditating upon who God is and your prayer life is stunted. I know you know I have all felt this over the, over the last year and a half, but if you find yourself stunted in your vitality of prayer, I don't want you to be shocked. I want you to know that's usually God's way of saying there's something that's between you and him. There is some sin or the effects of sin that is weighing on you. And that lack of intimacy with God is meant to provoke us to repentance at the very least, to contemplate the the pervasive nature of sin. It ruins everything. It it messes up everything. It, It ruins the best of things. Even a garden that's perfect and filled with the presence of God. So confession and intimacy with God go hand in hand. And Nehemiah models that one of the ways we experience renewal, if not the way, is that we begin to think about and contemplate the weight of sin, our own sin, and the sin that comes before us. Now, in that sense, you and I, look how he does this. He didn't do those things. He wasn't around, right? He wasn't around worshiping idols that got people deported and exiled to Babylon, He wasn't even around, but notice what he says. We have acted corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandment, the statutes and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Like He wasn't there when Moses said, do these things. And yet notice, he has no problem embodying a a concept and word that the Old Testament puts out. And I would say, this this is one of the key words in the Old Testament. It's the word contrite. The prophet Isaiah says that he, here's the one to whom I will look. He who is contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. What's that word mean? It means we're readily, readily and eagerly participating in confession of sin. That's penitence. In this sense, that's contrition. And we feel the weight of sin, not only ours, but others. And we cry out to God and we're willing to say, and here's the thing, man, like the minute you see any sin anywhere and you think, and pick the sin. If you, you see, see somebody doing something evil or wicked or sinful, and you think, at, even in the smallest part, you would never do that. That's the birthplace of arrogance, of apathy, of indifference. Because after all, like, at least I'm not that person. 
Even then, if you were like, man, if I were Adam, if I were Eve, I totally would have obeyed God. Sure. Yeah, you totally have a track record that proves that. And so the stories of these people who are ready to sin across the story of the Old Testament are meant to be things that we don't, we don't look down at them, but we go like, oh, yeah, I've totally done that. That's in me. I'll give you an example because I don't want to pick too many fights on this one, but I'll give you an example. In 1513, the, the Spanish monarchy issued what was called the requerimiento. It means requirement or it means a command. And it was this. They believed that as they were settling in the new world, they believed that it was God's divine decree that they should go and settle and conquer this new, this new world, okay? And in, in the requerimiento, what we find is that anyone then who opposed this, who stood against them, could rightfully be subjugated, imprisoned, enslaved, or killed. Because they, and this was an edict of, of at this time, this was, this was in the name of Christianity. God has given us the right to do this, and if you oppose us, I have the right to do whatever I want to to you. It's a real thing. I say that because in some sense, right, I don't have any, I don't have any Spanish bloodlines. I didn't do that. I was innocent. I wasn't there. I don't have any individual guilt for that. But here's the thing I have to admit to you. That's just because I was never a king of Spain. I'm just prideful and narcissistic enough. If, if I were the king of a country and I could subjugate other people, I probably would. And it is God's mercy to me and to you that he doesn't allow us to be monarchs. <laughs> and so here's the thing. Have you ever wanted to dismiss or silence people who disagree with you? Have you ever wanted to justify your actions as though you are God? Then friend, even though you and I were not anywhere close to the Caribbean or South America or Central America in the 16th century, it's not hard to believe we would do something like that. And God's merciful to give restraint to us. So I use that as one example because after all, that was something that was done in the name of Christianity. Have you ever done something as a Christian that in some way defames the name of Christ? Then friend, we lament that. I and my ancestors have sinned, right? I and my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, <laughs> have sinned. I'm just like him. And here's the thing, that might scare you. Defensiveness might pop up in you when you think about that. But I want you to know that's because you haven't heard the good news that God is a God of steadfast love, that he will receive, he will be attentive to our prayer and if we return to him and keep his commandments, he will gather us and bring us together in verse 9 to the place he's chosen. He will dwell with us there. And any part of us that wants to minimize sin, either our own or the effects of someone else's sin, I assure you, is the birthplace of arrogance and indifference and defensiveness. But contrition, knowing that we share the same DNA of every sinful person that's ever, single, like, that's ever walked the earth helps us to understand and experience how vast God's mercy is for us. 
So let me give you a couple things to wrap up on. Practical observations from this passage. One, renewal begins when we have deep sorrow for those without the hope of Christ and respond to God's call to move toward them. Notice what Nehemiah does. He has his heart broken for people who were living in hopelessness. And his response was to mourn and weep and then ask for, did you catch that? Favor or success before this, in the, in the sight of this man. That's what verse 11 says, right? He, and he's fine in the next, we'll see this next week. He goes to petition to the king, right? To petition the king. Because he cares about the people who are without hope. Think about it this way. Like, who are the people in your life that you know are currently living without hope? I'll invite you to even consider this for yourself. If you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. or Maybe you're not even sure. I'm so glad you're here. I believe you're here for a reason, and I want to encourage you with it. I think I have hope for you. <laughs> I think there is hope that God gives us in Christ. And I'm so glad that the Lord's brought you here. And I want you to consider the possibility that things are better than you think. That there is a greater hope and mercy granted to us in Christ than you could ever imagine. And the deepest longings of your heart have been satisfied, satisfied fully by God and what he's done for us in Christ. And renewal for us begins when we weep and mourn over the fate of those who are without hope. So Christian, do you know anyone who is without hope? hope in Christ? Do you know anyone who's living a life that is marred and destroyed by sin, like you used to be, right? Then before you do anything, just stop for a moment and weep. Just stop for a moment and consider what it's like to live in their shoes without hope. Don't look down on them. Don't, don't think better of yourself because just stop for a minute. That's exactly what you looked like when the Lord sought to make you his own. I'm so encouraged by this, even if you think about it, like he's weeping over the fate of the people in Jerusalem. And I love this because if you, if you kind of transport this, this, this narrative to what, what the people of God do even now, at one point, at what point, at one point, if you, if you are in Christ by faith now, at one point you are on this list. And here's the thing I know. God made someone weep for you. <laughs> you made it in, maybe didn't know it. You, you, didn't even, you weren't even aware of it. And yet God in his mercy was like, I'm going to care for that person, and the way I'm going to start it is I'm going to make this, first, this person's heart broken for them. So start there. Maybe if you're hard-hearted about that, ask the Lord to bless you with a soft heart. That might hurt. Judges 2 says it this way, right? The Lord is moved to pity. And so, in the same way, we're meant to be moved to pity for those around us who don't know Jesus. Friend, never pat yourself on the back for the fact that you have believed and received the good news of Jesus. Instead, receive it as a gift. Someone cared for you, wept for you, and moved towards you. And so, as a church that desires to experience renewal, Together, but also in our city, this is one of the most important things. A regular reflection upon the people around us who don't have the hope that we have in Christ. Maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, I just apologize. We're sometimes very pompous about this. Please forgive us. We forget sometimes how merciful God has been to us. Second thing you can see here, renewal begins when we see our earthly positions as instruments God is using to bring about his purposes. 
He throws an important fact at the very end there. This was a cupbearer to the king. This is a fairly influential guy in that sense. And I just want you to, I want you to stop for just a minute and think, has God placed you in a particular strategic place, right? Has he put you somewhere that you are meant to move toward and herald the redeeming work of God in Christ? I think that's a rhetorical question. I think the answer is yes. But renewal is when you begin to think that way. This is important for us as a church that as we begin to contemplate where God's placed us, and then as a church how we begin to to send one another to it, here's a warning. Many of you, you're thinking about Connection Church, and and, and you're thinking about even the local church, and even that you're thinking about how you can get comfortable in the seat you're sitting in. That is a godless endeavor. God will not honor that, and if, and if we're lucky, God will show his wrath by removing us or you. Don't get comfortable. Mourn and weep and prepare for God to lay out a path you couldn't have imagined and then equip and send you to it. That's what God's called us to be and to do. And that's what Nehemiah says is an ingredient of, an ingredient of renewal. Not just, oh, I, man, this is really great that I know God and I know his steadfast love, but I have something too good to keep a secret and the Lord is going to work. Again, whatever you think, your job, position, whatever, you probably don't like it. Most of us don't think that uh, this way. But what if, what if this was God's plan to glorify himself and to grant you great joy as you understand your purpose in the world? That's renewal. You begin to see these things are not coincidences. And then we together begin to propel and send one another to, to share the gospel, to mourn and weep over a city and go plant a church there, to mourn and weep over a neighborhood and then go move our gospel community there, to mourn and weep over family members and friends who, who have not heard the gospel, and then we move toward and we send one another to them. There's the last one. Renewal happens when we mourn and pray just like Jesus because he wept and prayed for us. Every flawed leader in the Old Testament is meant to be an appetizer for the satisfying work of Jesus. Nehemiah is no different. And when you think about a compassionate man like Nehemiah who wept over people, maybe that he didn't even know, and then felt compelled to stick his neck out to go and to serve them, then you begin to get a picture of what godly leadership looks like. Why would we mourn and why would we pray? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus looked over Jerusalem and mourned and wept over it more than once. Luke and Matthew both tell us an account of him looking over Jerusalem and said, Oh, how I wish I could have gathered you together, but you killed the prophets and rejected my calls to you. You've missed out. He weeps over those who are without hope. My favorite, obviously, is the shortest verse in the Bible you can learn. You can memorize a Bible verse today. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Jesus came to the family who had just lost their brother, Lazarus, Jesus' own friend. Jesus' own friend. And what does he do? He weeps with them. He has pity upon them. And that's weird to me because he's about to resurrect them from the dead. I would have been like, hey, guys, calm down, Okay. And right in that chapter, he talks, I'm the resurrection and the life, right? He believes in me, you'll never die, right? And that's what I would have led with that. I've been like, hey, guys, enough with the crying. Okay, just hang on. I'm about to raise him from the dead, right? That's what I would have done. But isn't it amazing to know that the God of the universe looks at you and looks at our cold and dead and lifeless state and is weeping for us? 
Not because we're without hope. He knows exactly what he's able to do. He weeps with us because he loves us. And friend, we can weep for others because that is what Jesus has done for us. We can move towards others because that is what Jesus has done for us. We can pray for others knowing that God will hear us. He will be mindful of us because that is exactly what Jesus experienced. Nehemiah's prayer for these people mirrors and points to the prayer of Jesus, even one of the last prayers of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And here's what you'll find out in this story. God heard and answered Nehemiah's prayer. And here's what you'll hear from me. God heard and has answered the prayer of Jesus. God has heard the cry of Jesus on the cross to grant forgiveness to people who are lost and dying without hope. And so therefore we can weep and mourn knowing that God will hear, that God will answer, that God will be with his people and grant us everything we need. Let's thank God for that and let's pray together. I want to lead us through a time of prayer more specifically for just a few moments. Would you bow with me as we begin to pray? I want to ask a few specific things. Where is your heart broken? In your own words, would you just simply confess that to the Lord? In your own words, would you just simply, in, in, a, in a simple words, you don't, it doesn't have to sound astute or dynamic, just simply say to the Lord where your heart is broken. Maybe if you're in this room and, and your heart is hard and, and you don't weep or mourn, your heart is not broken for anyone, then, then maybe the first prayer in your own words you should ask is, Lord, Lord, would you soften my heart? Would you, would you begin to break my heart for suffering and pain, for sin in my own life and sin that has devastated the lives of others? Would you even now ask the Lord to soften your heart? In your own words, would you, would you ask a, a bold prayer that God would grant you the ability to mourn and weep over the effects of sin in your life and the, in the life of others? We're not good at this. We, te- we tend to think if we start crying, we're, we just won't stop. So would you, would you ask that the Lord would allow us to, to weep righteously over the brokenness that exists around us? Here's the last one. Would you ask God that he would place on your heart and mind right now the name or names of people that you need to begin to fast and pray for? That months from now you will get the opportunity to testify to the hope of Jesus? Would you ask right now that the Lord would place a spirit-inspired name of someone who is currently without hope in Jesus? God, thank you so much that Nehemiah and his story gives us hope that you do not leave your people lost and in exile, but you come to be with them and for them. And you use miraculous means. You use pagan kings or or even lowly servants who are simply gripped by your word and your presence. Jesus, thank you that you did not minimize the weight of sin, but took it all to the cross. (laughs) 
Jesus, thank you that you wept and mourned over our fate such that you sweat drops of blood and took our place. Jesus, thank you that you loved us and cared for us so much that you were resurrected from the dead on our behalf. Thank you that that renews us and gives us hope that this life is not the end, that death does not get the last word, and that which breaks our heart in this world is the place that you will bring renewal and life as you come to make all things new. Give us this hope now as we respond to worship you and thank you for your life-giving word and your life-giving work. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.